Who no, knows? We got it. <laughs> On court chairs. <laughs> Technology revolution allows you to essentially go in the past, go in the future, change the past, make the future the past. Can you imagine using a typewriter? I did. I used to work for a law firm. No way. And uh, I don't know, it was like they had to file a motion or something, but you have to give it to the judge. No way. It had to be done on a typewriter for some reason. That is insane. It was pretty Why? Cool. That is pretty cool. Is the judge just like super old school type of dude? I have no clue. Yeah. I don't know why she needed it on a typewriter, but it definitely had to be on a typewriter. It's funny because did that teach you like actual lessons that you pull from the situation? You're like, oh, that was valuable. Yeah, if you fuck up, you can't unfuck it. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is, you know? You type the wrong few letters, then you have like a letter. It's like when you print something. Yeah. And you print something over something. You can't change that. No, yeah. you can't change it. You, you gotta start all, over, all the way from scratch. Exactly. So, I guess that the, the valuable lesson in that, if you really had to parse something out of it, is preparation and planning overrated but very necessary so I actually think that's so important the older I get the more that I think that I value preparation in a bunch of different uh, in a bunch of different ways right because I think that in the work setting like you will be you'll be coming in a situation unprepared and you'll be like, what the fuck, that was a total train wreck. Or you'll come in and somebody else will be unprepared when you've done everything you can to like make sure that they're prepared and then you're just like, what the fuck is going on? And you just get, uh, you know, it, it, it's frustrating. But anyway, I digress. It's, uh, I'm happy we have digital technology now and we don't have to use typewriters, so yeah. I'm glad we made it this far. All right, well... Thanks for joining me, Bill. It's always lovely to be in your company. We've uh, Same, man. we've known each other since the Philly days. Yeah, it's been a minute. It's funny because I realized earlier that I was calling uh, Spring Garden State Street. I was getting California and, and Philly mixed up. Well, we're gonna have to revoke your Philly card for that because <laughs> that just makes no damn sense. I know, I know, I know. I um, thought of that as I guess I'm like an idiot. Philly's got like 17 different streets and half of them are named after presidents, so you should be able to get there. And wood. And wood. And wood. Uh, <clears throat> with that said, uh, we've known each other for a while. You did off, uh, you know, I think we can take it back. We were both in Philly, mm -hmm. finished up at Temple. Yeah, well, I was still in Temple <clears throat> when we met. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, know I was at Temple too, but through our, we, we finished up at Temple. Got it, yeah. And uh, we both went into technology of sorts. Yeah, we did, dude. Uh, I think your experience first started with company RJ Metrics, right? It did, yeah. Uh, it was my uh, first real job, I guess you could say, uh, in the sense that like day job, because I was coming from the hospitality industry. Yeah, it's funny because even after, you know, <clears throat> I was a little bit older and I didn't have the traditional background of going directly to college, then going, you know, directly to a real job, and then, you know, whatever the typical path was. Uh, or I guess the typical path was like going away and leaving home and then going to college, living in a dorm, going through that experience, building your, you know, your college relationships and your college friends, and then going into like internships and then jobs. <clears throat> For me, it was 
just a, a much different path. One that I'm appreciative, like that I went through that experience because, um, you know, having that different perspective, I think, helped me look at things a little bit differently from other friends who were, had gone the traditional route, quote unquote. But yeah, um, didn't like officially, didn't graduate until I was 25, college, and then didn't um, really start at Temple until I was around 21. So did, yeah, like the four year stint between 21 to 25. Uh, and during that time was, you know, as you already know, I worked in the restaurant business and uh, before that, I worked in the restaurant business. Before moving to Philly, that is. Uh, did you work kind of at certain type of restaurants, or were you just open to any type of restaurant gig? And you know, were you cooking in the kitchen or cleaning dishes, or were you waiting tables? Yeah, I was in the front of the house serving at all the restaurants that I worked at in Philadelphia because I had that experience in my hometown, which. Actually, initially, the transition to Philly was kind of tough to sell people on uh, hiring you in this gig. Like, they wanted you to get in a more entry-level role within the restaurant. Um, and my whole perspective on it initially was just, how can I make the most money to support myself today or tomorrow? And initially, like, the type of food maybe was a little bit of an afterthought or like the style of restaurant or the aesthetics of a place. It was more just, this place looks like it's busy and they look like they have a high check average, uh, which kind of lends itself to a nicer restaurant with a nicer aesthetic. But it was mainly focused around how can I make the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time possible. But it's funny because over time that definitely evolved and I, uh, grew to like really love the industry, the hospitality industry, and definitely uh, cared about the place that I worked at and the type of food it served. And, you know, you begin to, as you like, you know, do something for a little longer and you take more pride in it, you definitely, I, I had that perspective. I was like, I, uh, you know, just didn't want to like work in a place that was super repetitive. Um, did you find, you know, as you deepened your knowledge and your experience that the return on value in terms of, you know, your tips or the way your colleagues or coworkers treated you or the way your boss uh, looked at you, did those things improve based on your, your experience or, you know, did you have a pretty much open, you know, yeah. was, it, was it already you know, pretty straightforward. And yeah. There wasn't much development. You know. So, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's like, so like the three different groups there would be like the guests, the coworkers, and then management. And uh, I think that your coworkers value people who can, uh, in the restaurant setting, they value team players, people who, you know, as busy as you get, uh, you can help them and they can rely on you for that. And you know, they can look to you as like a, a part of this cohesive team. Um, and also one other thing that I think that they really appreciate in the, the restaurant setting. And I think in, in these apply broadly to, to different jobs as well, but I think that uh, attitude is actually a huge thing. And you know, if you came in every day and you were just negative and people didn't want to be around that, people wanted to be around 
somebody who is like, you know, and I also didn't want to be around anybody who was negative. You wanted to, I, I personally wanted to have fun with what I did in every day and would try to bring the attitude of like, here to have fun, but also take myself seriously. Uh, and those things, you know, you had to balance them. So it's like having fun and joking around when the time is right uh, and cracking some jokes here and there when you see somebody and, and making light of situations that may not be the, uh, that may like, you know, there's a lot of high stress and high anxiety moments within the restaurant setting. Uh, but having the opportunity and being able to just make light of that stuff, I think people appreciate it because they're like, oh, okay. You know, they, they crack a smile too. And then they, they like that. So it's, yeah, that balance of having a good attitude and then also having a hustle and having a uh, teamwork first mentality where your peers could rely on you. And then management just wants you to be reliable, I think. And they want the guests to be happy. So, and then that leaves the guest, which is like, they will appreciate in pretty rare instances, I think, uh, depending on the place you work at, you having certain knowledge and they definitely don't want like a lecture on uh, food or wine. Um, <laughs> at least I don't when I go out to eat and maybe I'm thinking about things from that perspective, but they want fast, efficient, quick service, right? And uh, at times when they want to have a question or if you work in a type of place, uh, there's a spectrum of this, like at places that are super casual, they just want it fast and quick, but at places that skew towards the higher end, they, there's it skews a little bit more that's on that other end of the spectrum where people will actually be curious or have questions about the food or the wine or the beverage or how the chef does something um, that they will rely on you to be really knowledgeable about. Um, so yeah, those are like the different people and I think the, like the different things you need to think about or that I thought about. But yeah, I don't know if that totally answers the question exactly. Yeah, well, I don't know if the question asked anything specifically, but I think <clears> it's, <throat> it's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I tend to ramble. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what's interesting is, you know, essentially there's these base skills and experiences that are agnostic to the industry or the actual application or the actual thing that you're doing. It doesn't matter what the food is. It doesn't matter, you know, what the forks look like and silverware. It, what matters is you yourself and how you first interact with your environment, mm -hmm. whether it be your coworkers or the customers. And then it matters on your attitude, whether you be positive or negative. And then it matters on the perception of what you're doing. And so how your environment actually perceives you. And so, you know, a customer could perceive you as annoying because you're just going on about, you know, this wine that was made, you know, in the field of Normandy, you know, 500 years ago. No one cares about that. Just pour the glass of wine, please, sir. And then, you know, uh, I, I think that's, you know, I, I guess where we're going with this is how it, it, skills and experiences yes. transcend the actual thing that you're doing. Because, you know, I, when you went into the technology field, you went into essentially sales, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in sales, it seems like a lot of those types of skill sets and activities uh, were important in, you know, 
you have to speak with a potential customer. You have to understand what they're looking for. You have to understand their needs. You have to work with maybe marketing or another account executive or uh, you know someone who brought in the lead and understand what their role is in maintaining the relationship and getting the right information to the customer. So you know, it seems like teamwork, attitude, and ability to kind of understand different scenarios or circumstances uh, was something that you developed first in the food industry, but is something that you know you continue to do even outside of work. I know you just personally, you've always been able to kind of communicate with people, you know, find common ground with different individuals. And uh, you know you're a pretty good listener, and you also are a pretty good storyteller, which tends to culminate into just lively experiences. <laughs> I'm flattered. Uh, my girlfriend may disagree with you about the communication, <laughs> but that said, uh, you know it, it's really funny because I think that it's all about experience and perspective in anything you do, right? And like uh, whether that's you know, when you work in hospitality, uh, once you go out to eat at a bunch of different places or go out to eat with your friends and family, um, and you have certain experiences, it's only when you do that that you get some perspective on like, oh wow, like this is what other people are experiencing, this is what other people are seeing. And then that, when you go back into that setting, it informs the way you act and what you do and you just have a totally different perception, right? And then I think in the professional world too, for me in quote unquote, like in sales uh, specifically. Um, yeah, like, you know, just as anything, you know, you start off and you're new at something and you don't really know what the hell you're doing. And then uh, it's only later on when maybe your company or your team starts to mature to a stage where you start buying software from other vendors or suppliers and then you get to see the other end of the purchasing process and understand all the stakeholders involved and, and understand what it's like on the other end and that perspective gives you so much insight into how you then go back into what you're doing um, so yeah it's just like it, it's interesting because like it's sometimes it's a matter of just time and experience right and 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 having the opportunity to like go through some things or get the chance to see things from both sides. Uh, but yeah, it'd be cool if there was a way to like fast track that, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know if there is, maybe there is, and I'm just like an idiot who needs to learn the hard way. I don't know. Well, you know, I would say that's humanity. You know, I think at some point we all hear the things that we should do or we all learn about things that we should do. Yeah. Very rarely do we just start doing that 100% dude. and even if we do it it doesn't very rarely does it become a habitual act unless it's enjoyable or unless the type of environment you're in really reinforces that type of behavior uh, I think yeah. we'd all be happy to just sit on the couch eat a bag of chips and watch TV <laughs> at least for a few months <laughs> at least at least in the beginning and then after some time then we start realizing well damn maybe there's something I should do in this world to bring up my livelihood yeah and from there you start you know you, you almost need that impetus that that motivation uh 
you know, it wasn't until like my sophomore year, like I had to go through two semesters of, you know, freshmen, like I had to go through like- Two semesters you know, of lays. Yeah, I had to go through a couple bad GPAs to be like, hmm, you know, what am I doing here? What's the purpose of this all? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I think some people are a little smarter, a little more quicker to get- I was never a good student, do. dude. Uh, never really a good student, I would say. Uh, but like Einstein, just getting C's in class, but really a mathematical. No, 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 far from it, shit. Uh, no, but it's funny because I think that like that actually ties into my earlier point of perspective, um, because I I think that I always had a hard time understanding like how the hell is this applicable or like you know some of the concepts were pretty abstract. So if you couldn't kind of apply it to some real life value, then you kind of, it was more difficult for you to absorb the information. Yeah, it was all about context really. And it was all about like, uh, you know, I was in a place where I was at college. I think that I, I, I imagine this is something that a lot of kids go through, but you know, you're kind of studying a major that uh, you're just doing because uh, maybe that's just like the path that people take. So you're like, hey, I'm gonna do this thing too. But you really don't like think too critically or too, you don't critically think about why you're doing what you're doing or like what the end result is gonna be. Or you don't put a long-term yeah. thought onto it. It's more of a short-term, this is what I'm gonna do rather than 10 years from now, this is why I did this type. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's uh, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Like, you know, begin with the end in mind. Like, when you start studying something, you should be thinking about what's the end goal? Oh, I'm gonna get a job doing this thing, right? And then, or like when I start going to college, I'm gonna get this job, so my goal is gonna be to study X, Y, and Z and be proficient in these skills. But it wasn't, anyway, I was kind of just like wandering through school until I actually found a really good, uh, I took a, got really super lucky, took this, class this uh, finance professor uh, it was corporate finance and he was just super entertaining guy really just did a good job of giving context to the subjects that we were learning about that nobody else had done previously and it just lit everything up in a different light where I was just like wow okay this is really cool this is actually really fascinating and it was uh yeah, it was uh, it was funny because that was like helping me see the light. I found that, um, and maybe it's a good thing that I went through that journey initially to get there. And maybe it's a good thing that I didn't just know that off the jump. You know, I think that's the funny thing about life is like we all have our own path, and they, uh, yeah, it's just we they. We just so happen to cross paths in one way, um, but it's it happened much journey. different paths it's, before. It's the journey that builds you, right? Not what you get at the end of the journey, but it's going through that journey that is what is making you, you know, whole or you know, making you more robust in terms of your ability to interact in today's economy or today's world or you know, a classroom or you know, a yeah. restaurant or a job or an opportunity or just even having a conversation with someone, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can have a conversation based on your own experiences. Uh, so with that said, you were in Philly. Yeah. And at Seven that point years. you were pretty, 
you kind of had a good grasp of who you were, what you could do, and where you kind of were going, right? Kind of. Yeah. I didn't say <laughs> where you wanted to go, but yeah, where, yeah. at least you, you kind of understood that you were in some <clears throat> positive acceleration of, of your life. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. Uh, post-college, you got your college degree and you had a job. You know, I think that's that's a good start, right? Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, the company that you were working with essentially went through some major changes, correct? Yeah, yeah, And so, essentially, you know, you found yourself now needing to determine what the next step was going to be, correct? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. I mean, I, I think that I um, was craving a change and uh, professionally and then also like personally wanting to get out of Philly. You wanted to get out of Philly? You yeah, I think that I think really what it was is this sense of, uh, maybe it's like the sense of like impending regret or what would happen if I never left Philly. So I better do it now before it never happens. And then I wake up and I'm 70 years old and I'm still like living in the same city and never left. Uh, that drove some of my decision making for sure. Um, so you go through that decision making. You go through some encounters. There's a, a matter of proactiveness on your part. There's a matter of probably some luckiness and just yeah, you know, for sure. chance opportunity. Long story short, you find yourself in California, correct? Correct. Yeah. How was that transition? Uh, it was good, man. It was. Which part of California did you end? I was up in San Francisco. And, uh, yeah, it was a big move, right? Like moving across the country is, uh, there were times after like, I think there was like a, a big period of excitement for sure. But then, you know, I think with these types of situations, there's like this point initially where it's super exciting. Everything is new, you know, you have with new people and places around you. And then that's the first two months or three months maybe. And then I wonder if this is documented. I wonder if there's research that's been done on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was. Like the honeymoon phase essentially. And then after that, the next like four months to six months maybe is really, really difficult because you start to realize how far away your family is. You start to realize that uh, you have a lot of friends back home and you miss being able to go home and, you know, go over and uh, grab a beer with, you know, your buddy Abdus or play basketball on the weekends with some people. Um, you're, you're definitely in like, you're, you're way outside your comfort zone and, and you, that is, at that point, it's really real and it's really scary. But then you just, you know, I, I'm really fortunate because I'm definitely a, uh, like a pretty social person, I, I would say, in the sense that not afraid to put myself in uncomfortable situations and, you know, uh, try to meet new people. Um, because you really do have to put in a lot of effort to do that when you're new to a city. And it's weird being 27 and going through that where you're like, you know, Can you be you're like friend, asking people on a, exactly. You're asking people on like a friend date, which is such a weird concept to think about. It's like, oh, I hear this this good show going on. You, you might want to see it with me. Uh, yeah, you want to watch like Sopranos together? Like, yeah. You got to start bribing people. Like, I hear that, man. Uh, yeah, dude, it's weird. But so yeah, yeah. and then like, 
I was super fortunate though, because like I had that experience. San Francisco is a beautiful place. Really, really, I have. It's an interesting place. Of course, it's going through weird times right now um, for a number of different reasons. But yeah, fun at first, then got kind of difficult and depressing. Then after that, uh, got better. And it was a really, really positive experience all in all. And I was really, really lucky to meet some cool people early on and have a really good living situation. I had two roommates that uh, I really, really liked. And then they're really, really close friends of mine still today. Uh, was just texting them today and in the past couple of days. And they're giving me shit. <clears throat> like, you know, friends do, I guess. Uh, but no, it was a really, really fun experience. I I, I loved my uh, my time in San Francisco, and I definitely kind of miss it a little bit. I think that's probably because I've been having some difficulty here with my living situations, but yeah. Well, now you're back in New York City, mm-hmm. which is East Coast again, but, you know, I, I think... There's a there's a significant difference between living in New York and Philadelphia. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Although they're both both cities on the East Coast, uh, New York is its own animal. Hundred percent. And in the last podcast, I was speaking with Virginia, who had yeah, I get to listen to that. an experience from you know the most rural of places in the Middle East and Africa yeah. to. And you know, as well as living in what was the main Europe grip? Because <clears throat> we spoke before before they started about there were like gripes yeah, about New York there, City. There's a certain struggle that exists here. Okay. And I think that struggle is compounded by a blindness of okay. the struggle. It's like there's an elephant in the room. Hmm. The elephant in the room is. This is the greatest city on earth, but 90% of its inhabitants cannot barely survive in it. So is it really the greatest city or is it the greatest city for some? And then for the vast majority, we're all just chasing the dream. Yeah. And the, the, the maze of chasing that dream and getting close to it, but never getting, it's like the dangling carrot. It's like, we're all hoping to, to kind of push over to the next side of no worries, no, you know, major stresses, you know, kind of that your rent's good, that, you know, your livelihood's going to be good, but in that, you know, the next five years, you'll be okay. And I don't know if that's, you know, at this point, I can't say that's a New York problem or if it's just almost a life problem. Yeah. You know, if I go back 500 years from now in the past, you know, it was like the wild, wild west, you know? I mean, the, the, the age expectancy was probably only to like 40, and there was probably less laws in that someone could come and slap you upside the head and that would just be it. So life is obviously, or the quality of life and you know, the opportunity of life is likely better in today's society, but there's still some inherent struggles of, you know, the rents going up, the subways are getting more crowded. Yep. You know, yeah. there's always kind of this threat of fear of, you know, some type of, you know, 
I'm violence just, I'm, I'm or so, something. I'm so curious. Though, like, what is the... So... I guess if somebody has an issue with those things, what, what is... I, I, I don't know what the other opinion was, and I, I'd love to hear it, um, but I wonder if there was, like, a solution that they had, or I wonder if they were just like, I don't like this place and I want to leave. Well, I think that's why I said compounded by the blindness. I think... And I can't speak for, but the fact that I want to talk about like one person specifically. I guess like we could generally speak about people who don't like, have this kind I mean, of opinion. Let's look at a scenario. Why are there so many homeless in this city, dude? San Francisco's crazy. San Francisco, so many homeless, and these are two of the richest areas, not in the country but in the world. Mm-hmm. And they also happen to have the highest population of homeless. Now, maybe it's some Darwinian evolution where homeless people naturally, through natural selection and osmosis, go towards where the money is. But it seems to be that this gap of wealth and poverty are coexisting together. It's like the yin and the yang, where you have rich people, you have super poor people. Or no people, you know, it's like, it's almost like there isn't an in-between as much these days. Oh, okay, so like the middle class is kind of disappearing and that is what the thought is there? Well, whether it be the middle class or to your point, you didn't want to stay in Philly, wake up 50 years and be like, oh, damn, I've, I'm bald and I'm still in Philly. <laughs> I think I have good genes, actually. My grandpa had hair until he was 96. All right, well, you'll have a full <laughs> set of hair, but even with a full set of hair, yeah. being in Philly with a full set of hair wouldn't be enough. And for and it should be enough, right? You got a full set of hair. Hopefully, you got you know something you can take care of yourself. So what? You're in Philly. It's you know you're not in Kosovo like Philadelphia yeah, yeah, yeah. should are. But there's some drive to keep going Up. higher, and that drive leads a lot of people. Or different. I don't know if it's up, if it's just a different direction. But yeah, yeah I wouldn't. We'll say positive. Yeah. To keep going forward, okay. right? But that drive is almost like a casino, you know? You go in trying to win, and maybe you win, and maybe you keep winning. But at some point, you're gonna lose through those winnings, unless you kind of are able to say, you know what, I have enough and I can stop. Yeah. And so I think one of the gripes, or grips, however you say that word, with New York is that there's no settling almost. It's almost like you're always having to constantly struggle mm-hmm. to survive. And such is life. Because it's a competitive environment, yeah. But the competitiveness of it, and also, you know, it's, it's, I remember one thing that was said is that it's almost so perfectly structured. Here's your office building. Here's your street with the lights. Here's your street. Here's your little park. Here's your bar. Here's your industries of choice. It's almost like this perfect organization, right? Hmm. And so, you know, you can imagine going somewhere in South America. It's a completely different lifestyle. Very different culture. Yeah. You know, essentially the landscape is completely open. Rather than giant buildings blocking your view, you can see miles across. You don't have wealthy people flaunting, you know, the latest brand wear. 
Yeah. But those people are still happy and content with smiles. Yeah, definitely. Love. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people in New York walk around, I wouldn't say angrily, but to people who are from some of these other areas, they come to New York and they're like, why are people so like upset or so pissed off or so tired or so, you know, just neutral. Indifferent. And so, you know, I... That's interesting. Yeah. And California is probably a little different, right? Even in California, you probably have a lot more people like, hey, man, like... I mean, this is the, know, this is the West Coast, like, or I, I don't know. San Francisco is probably the closest thing to an East Coast. City. Yeah, it's probably the closest thing to an East Coast city in the West Coast. But um, it's funny because I think a little bit ago you mentioned like the idea of stay in Philly. Oh, excuse me, um, stay in Philly. For me, like the decision, uh, it wasn't like stay in Philly and just like relax or like leave and try to strive for other things. I think it was more like, do I want to stay here and try to really establish Philadelphia as my home and like really, really dig in here and really, really uh, build a life for myself here? Or do I want to go out and get other experiences and then potentially make the decision at that point as to whether or not I want to come back to Philly and and build a life? Um, Which yeah, it's unclear. Who knows? I don't even I don't know what I'm gonna do. Eat for breakfast tomorrow or do this weekend. Um, you eat breakfast? I don't actually eat breakfast now. Okay. Yeah, I drink coffee. Uh, usually. Do you drink water before the coffee? I drink water and coffee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like together, two two cups. No, no, no two cups. Yeah, yeah. Two cups. Yeah. Do you exactly. brew your own coffee or do you go to Starbucks? I do. No, no, no. I do. Yeah, yeah. My girlfriend usually has been brewing coffee in the morning, but I also brew my own coffee, um, or I will get it at work. I'm actually a big, I've been trying to cut a lot of expenses. You know, we can have a whole nother conversation about personal finances. And uh, I feel like I am so. Over just letting your money fall out of your pocket for a little $2, $3 trinkets? No, 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 no. Even, uh, maybe we should have this conversation off the record, but I would say that like I try to be so, uh, what's the word here for like. Not frugal. No, 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 like, it defies logic almost sometimes where I, like, will be so frugal on some things and then just blow a whole bunch of money on other things that just don't make any sense. So I definitely, like, will way make up for those things. Uh, there, there, there is a good word for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, and it's a strategy they actually employ in the, uh, the retail oh. industry. It's called, like, a, it's like a flash sale. It's like flash sales okay. are these mechanisms built to target people's psychology for these type of aspects. What do you call it? It's like it's like the spur of the moment yeah. type thing. Yeah. And so in the spur of the moment, it's so it's not about that you want to save money as much as it's you know the money gets spent when the spur of the moment comes across. Yeah, I think it, what it really what it comes down to is like unconsciously uh, making stupid decisions. Um, you know, but that's but that's stupid in hindsight. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes you're gonna spend your money and be like, "This is so stupid. Why am I spending it?" And you're still gonna spend it, but usually you're gonna oh. spend it. You're gonna enjoy it for however time it lasts. Oh yeah. And then a day later, a week later, even a month later. Even sometimes still, like, a couple months later, you're like, why'd I do that? <laughs> why did I do that? 
<laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. What's the... There's a whole... Uh, fuck. I feel like there's that one um, like book that everybody's talking about. Um, where they talk about this exact kind of thought process that people are really bad at, actually. Like, it's, it's almost like... Um, it's like instinct. A certain kind of reasoning that people are... are they think they're reasonable, and they think they make rational decisions, but they actually don't make rational decisions. Well, that's, uh, anyway. Well, no, well, I mean, now you're talking my, my alley, because you know, <laughs> I, right. I yeah, studied yeah, yeah. behavioral economics, which essentially took the economic model of rational theory, mm-hmm. the rational choice theory, which is that humans make rational decisions and we'll get to equilibrium based yeah, but it's on so such. Not true. And it's really, you know, we're all shooting up cocaine and, you know, doing opium <laughs> and killing each other and, you know, stealing from each other. Mm-hmm. And if you really study human behavior, we're just full of irrational decisions. Oh, 100%. I'd, I'd like to, I'm not, you know, I'd like to think of myself as a very rational person. I know that I do a lot of things that are really irrational. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and I'd like to think of myself as a very logical person, but... Yeah, I think that me, by the nature of me doing some irrational things, it is just like I'll look back and I'll be like, oh yeah, no, that was not the right thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, you just said a lot about uh, inequality and about like, you know, being stagnant in life maybe and being, you know, maybe striving for more. Um, I think that for me, like, personally, you know, I'm not an expert on inequality or homelessness, I, I, I'm not qualified to have a really strong opinion on any of these topics, uh, unfortunately. I, I wish that I was, but I will say that for me personally, yeah, the, the decision to leave and come to a new city was definitely much driven by, yeah, ambition or trying to do more, and uh, the potential, like, the fear of potentially regretting something down the road or, uh you know, the excitement also of like what's on the other end. And yeah, New York is definitely a good place for those things, like it's an exciting place to be. There's definitely a really good energy about it. Um, and also I'm, I may be much different than your last guest because I'm uh, speaking out New York in a positive way, uh, but I can't help it because I'm, I think just my nature is just like, I'm a really positive person and I uh, tend to see the, the, the good in the situation or the good in things, but I do like New York for that reason. Like, I feel like there is a real, like you hear people say it, like the energy. Um, but yeah, like, you know, people, th- th- there's just something in the air and like, you know, you find yourself doing these crazy things like working really late or working two jobs or doing some crazy shit that like, you will just be like, uh, like eventually it'll catch up to you, I think maybe. But, uh, yeah, that energy is real for sure. Do you feel like you've kind of had that same experience where you you see that energy in New York, or you feel that? Oh, yeah. I think just internally, I have a lot of ambition and a lot of drive. Yeah. And uh, I've met my match here in the city. In that you know, not met my match in that you know something that I'm trying to beat, but met my match in that I've found a city that can actually take everything that I can give it and help me see the results of it. Yeah. 
Uh, but it's a double-edged sword because, to your point a little earlier, and you didn't go fully on it, but, you know, it can catch up to you, right? Oh, 100%. Uh, and so I've had to also find my balance here and uh, understand that underexertion is just as important as overexertion. Balance, yeah. Um, with it's that. like some of the age-old wisdom that just feel like, you know, like we talked about it earlier, is like... Uh, It'd be so great if we could just learn from the wisdom of other people. And sometimes we can. Like, sometimes you, you read these things and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to take that lesson and I apply it in my life. Uh, but it's like people always talk about balance. And it's one of those things that you just, it's, it's a constant struggle. Finding balance in, in whatever you do. Like, balance of, like, working a lot, but also, like, finding time to have hobbies and do some cool and fun shit that are, you know, that's on the side. Yeah. It's, there's, there's, there's nothing easy about this life. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people talk about Republicans, Democrats, black, white, Spanish, Muslim. But to me, <clears throat> some of the greatest dichotomies I've seen have been generational, the hmm. young and the old. Interesting. And where I see kind of the biggest diverges of thinking come from how someone who's 50 thinks versus how someone who's 18 will think. Yeah. And it's completely different. In what sense? Let's take it, for example. You can go to WeWork. The printer rarely works. <laughs> so the elevators, dude. <laughs> I swear to God. Well, we got bad elevators in all these buildings, man. They're all <laughs> smashing people. But printer... Let's say I had a sample group, N equals 25 for people over the age of 50, and N equals 25 for people over the age of, or under the age of uh, 30. I guarantee you the people, the group, the control group of uh, people over the age of 50 would find it extremely more challenging to work in an environment where there's no printer. Whereas the younger people maybe might say, well, you know, I'll just keep the email on my email and I'll just type the document and send it over as a PDF and that's going to be all right. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I think older people kind of like to have the physical interaction with the document, read it, absorb it, things like that. Interesting. Or take healthcare or social security. Well, let's take social security. Older people are like, you know, I'm retiring soon. I want this social security check. I've been paying my taxes for the social security. I need it. Yeah. I'm expecting it. Yeah. And so, you know, I, the, the next politician who's like, let's abolish social security, how many young people are going to be angry at that? Maybe some, but maybe not as much. Yeah, not many. Now, let me give you another experience. Student loans. That's a young people problem, right? Yes. Old people aren't like, oh, damn, my student loans aren't getting paid. No. That's people graduating college over the past 10, 15 years like, holy crap. This trillion dollar debt bubble is becoming a little overwhelming. But when have you ever heard a politician really make the student loan situation a part of their platform? Yeah, it's challenging, dude. I mean, that... That's not a simple, uh, you know, I'm somebody who has a lot of student loans and I'm really excited to be paying them off as soon as possible. I, yeah, I would be, 
I, I think the one thing that, you know, as far as politics are concerned, I, well, I maybe we have private political conversations. I'm, I'm somebody who actually does not uh, watch, I don't watch the news at all anymore because it's, uh, I think that you can easily totally consume yourself into politics and you know then who it takes over the your, wa- your, your life. You know who watches the news? Old people. <laughs> Probably, yeah, is what you're gonna say. Well, but young people are on Twitter, so like it's the same shit, right? Like, I think that you can get yourself consumed in politics, um, but it's really hard to find the balance in the middle ground with politics. Like it's it's really kind of hard to just like dabble in it. And uh, for me personally, at least, and maybe that's just my personality, but I think the better out for me personally is I just I was into it very much so for a little while, but I've chose to avoid it. And I think that one of the big problems is is sometimes people making super complex issues. Uh, it's like oversimplifying them a little bit too much. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, interested to hear your thoughts about this stuff at a later date, but I, uh, yeah, I, I have student loans um, and excited to pay them off. But like, yeah, as a generational thing, you know, I have never actually worked with people who are too, too much older than me, weirdly, right? Like I've worked at these yeah. young companies. I've never worked at a big company ever in my life. So like, I don't know what it's like to work in a big bureaucratic well, organization. Well, I've never worked for a big company either, but for some reason, and I've worked in startups my whole life. Yeah. But I've worked at such a low stage level of startups that I tend to work directly with the founders who tend to, on average, be older. Mm. Or I tend to work with you know, maybe the first hires who tend to be a little older in some cases, you know, that first team. And so, you know, the majority of my coworkers have been, you know, probably average age 45, 46. Oh, wow. No way. For sure. Yeah. It's allowed me to learn tremendously because of their experience but it's also allowed me to understand that there's such a gap in how you know we grew up and kind of the information that's directed to youth and then how they grew up several podcasts ago I did a podcast with my friend George and we discussed George oh yeah 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 you know George yeah whether there's bad decisions or not and whether there's oh, stupid I people, I can't wait till your podcast with Aaron or not. <laughs> and uh, you know the whole thing. Oh, say it one more time. We, I'm sorry. You know, just bad decisions and stupid people, and how they come together. Okay. And whether there's a such thing as a bad decision, and whether there's a such thing as someone who's stupid for making that bad decision. Mm. And so one of the topics that came up was people who smoke around kids. Smoke cigarettes around kids. Yeah. Yeah. Today, if you smoke around kids, it's probably it would be coined as a bad decision, and people would probably label those persons as stupid. But thirty years ago, or like bad people in general, yeah, or even bad people, like they call them morally like corrupt yeah, from yeah, that. Exactly. But thirty years ago, it people was we're smoking in planes. <laughs> Can you imagine what that was like smoking an airplane? Fuck. So there's there's been a huge shift in the cultural, moral uh, value system of the world. 
yeah. or at least in America for sure. And uh, it's predominantly to the positive, but there seems to be a gap, and that gap seems to kind of be leaving both sides unfulfilled. Hmm. For the record, um, if I ever find out that I have terminal, some kind of terminal illness, and they tell me I have like you know a week or a month to live, I'm gonna do whatever I can to fucking charter a private plane so I can smoke while I fly in an airplane because I just want to know what that's like, man. <laughs> you know, I see these movies where these people are flying and smoking. Uh, it just seems really interesting. Anyway, yeah, this is a really deep question. It was a good one. I'm sorry, I don't mean to diminish that. No, it's, it's all good. The, 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 there's, you know, the whole what I said was that there's generational differences seem to be the biggest, uh, some of the biggest dichotomies that I yeah. see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and you talked about this concept of like, you know, these like moral uh, things being immoral as we maybe like learn more as society. Uh, yeah, like. Young millennials don't even want to print anymore because they think they're killing the trees. Yep. You know what I'm saying? It was, it, it's interesting, though, because I was listening to this guy talk the other day. Uh, it was a conversation with this guy the other day, and um, he was talking a lot about the concept of parenting, which I don't know anything about. I, I've recently become an uncle, um, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. Welcome to the unclehood. Yeah, dude. It's pretty cool. Uh, I need to go down and visit her again soon. But... He talked a lot about the concept of parenting and about how, you know, today's children are so much more sheltered than, you know, kids of, of any past generation and how that's led to such a huge uptick in anxiety, depression, all these different issues. It was really, really fascinating. I, I would be interested to hear your take on this too, but he talked about this concept of something being anti-fragile. I don't know if you ever heard of this. But like a good example, the one that he used was your immune system is anti-fragile, meaning that like the more you, you, need to, you need to expose it to some some things outside of its comfort zone yeah. in order to actually build it yeah. and make it strong. Yeah, exactly. And then he related that to kids and about how kids don't need a helicopter parent or somebody you know hovering over them at all times although as a parent like I said I don't know what this is like but it seems like that's actually pretty difficult to do because you love your children so much and you want to be there with them and I, I, like I said couldn't imagine what that's like at this point in my life uh, and I'm just starting to maybe see that as, as you know from the perspective of being an uncle but he talked about how uh, what's happening with kids is like they need to be on their own. They need to have their own experiences. They need to go out and, and be alone without parent supervision sometimes and like make mistakes amongst themselves and have these issues and work it out and, and kind of like figure it out. And that's how they're going to strengthen and grow as human beings and eventually get to a point where they're adult and they're not having to think about these things and figure them out as, as they are, you know, maybe 18 instead of 12. Right. Um, but it's funny cause it kind of relates to, I don't know if you had buddies in high school who, were just very sheltered and then they hit uh, the point when they went to college and they just went totally crazy because I feel like we all have those friends. Well, I was I was closer to that spectrum than probably most. I mean, I didn't go totally crazy in college. At least I don't think I did. But uh, <laughs> I was definitely, I don't know, I lived in West Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. A lot of my friends lived in the Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill, Germantown area. Yep. Completely different part of the city. Yep. You know, we were young. I, from middle school up 
words, you know, I had to take regional rail to get to school. Yeah, yeah. Or I had to take regional rail to get to my friends. Yeah. So there was physical geography. Uh, also had, you know, parents fairly religious. So I kind of had high, like, standards of this is how you need to behave. This is what you need to do. And then, you know, I'd be seeing my friends doing, like, backflips and cartwheels, like, out of the car, telling their mom to shut the fuck up. And, like, <laughs> I was just like, I need this what? lifestyle. No, I'm just kidding. But the whole point is, you know, I, I essentially, I, you know, to your example, I, I do understand. And when I did get to college, I did find myself making decisions that were very much tied to how sheltered my upbringing was. Yeah. And uh, well, it sounds like your parents did a good job of like teaching you to be respectful, and like those things are important, right? Giving you structure and teaching you how to be respectful. But yeah, I think there's like in a perfect world, the perfect balance for a kid maybe would be, and I have no clearly, I'm not qualified to talk about this, and I have no idea what I'm talking about. But you would think uh, it's yeah, getting that foundational like teaching people how to be good human beings, but also at the same time giving them the freedom to go out and make their mistakes. Yeah, hats off to all the parents who figure out how to strike how to that do balance, that. Yeah, right? Yeah, dude, seriously. I mean, shit, I'm probably going to listen to myself talk about this in 10 years and be like, what the fuck? Are you, you have no idea what you're talking about. And like I said earlier, it's all about perspective. Yeah, right? as an uncle, as a fellow uncle, you know, I've seen... How many, uncle, how many nephews do you have, nieces? I have four nephews and, Damn, dude. and a niece. Damn. Uh, as an uncle, and even in my own life, the, 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 the weird starts getting weird with the parenting you, yeah. you know as a parent you probably think you got it and then it's when those friends come around those pesky <laughs> little friends that you see your child now learning just as they learn from the parents yeah or the siblings yeah start learning even probably even more reinforced learning from their social peers and then you start worrying, well, are their peers providing the right learning experiences? They barely know what they're doing. Or what are their parents doing at home? Yeah. Or exactly, or the, the way those peers act in their parenting, is it the same values and ways I had foreseen for my child? Yeah. And so then you start trying to figure out, well, how do I get my child in the right social circles to try to maximize their exposure to positive Interactions as opposed yeah. to the friend who's already you know smoking weed by eighth grade. You yep. know what I'm saying? Yep, yep, yep. Like how to get them involved in sports and doing stuff like that. Yeah. Or you know these days all these kids they're on the social media and like you know Dude, tweeting crazy, about you man. know their nipple sizes and stuff. It's it's it's, it's, it's a mad it's a mad world. <laughs> it's, it's a mad. Are you following your nephews on Twitter? <laughs> well, no, I'm not. <laughs> Uh, I've I've actually cut out a lot of uh, social, social media. media. So I, out, I don't go on Facebook. I don't go on Instagram. So I've pretty much cut out Facebook. I have WhatsApp, and they're going to be doing some mergers that's soon not, and stuff. But that's not social. What, media. Yeah, WhatsApp is not. That's communication with like your friends and family. It is, but it's owned by Facebook. Okay, fair and enough. They're supposed to be merging the Facebook Messenger morning. with the WhatsApp with with Instagram. Some something. So I don't know what that's going to become. Yeah. But the whole point is. I've tried to cut out my Facebook, but just today I'm on a subway, I look at someone on their Instagram, and it's literally just the most ratchet shit on their feed. Like, it's 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 pure debauchery. And, I mean, mm. excuse me, maybe you have a much more enlightened 
uh, group of followers and I'm people not, that you I'm follow not than I do. Either. But no. last time I checked, it's not like, you know, people preaching like, you know, calculus and like philosophy <laughs> and like moral good and positivity. No. It's people taking selfies and photos of their latest, greatest adventures yep. and everyone's happy and perfect. And then there's some memes about, you know, random shit that no one cares about. Memes are good. Like there should be a social media platform just for memes. Facebook's coming out with a platform just for memes. Really? And it's no targeted shit. to young generation because that's how we're communicating. No way. Which brings me to another point. I think this was yesterday. God, I had this dude, little I'm eureka so moment. I'm so happy that I wasn't a kid at this time because I feel like so many pictures that they got leaked of me as a kid. There could be some good memes. I still need to go back to my Facebook and probably clean up some of that. <laughs> I, I got hit. I got hit a little bit there. You know, I got to make sure it's all it's all good there. But with that said, it's we're all just reading and consuming pictures these days. Dude. We're little, like, you know, 140 character messages. And you know what that reminded me of? Children books. Where else is it that you consume information, but it's really just photos? or it's basic sentences. It's C-spot run, and then there's a picture of a dog running. And you're like, oh, there's, there it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, that's how basic our consumption has become. Or it's television, we're just watching, once again, pictures, and then there's you know some headline or some- Yeah, it's an like, interesting like, parallel to draw. I think that really what it comes down to is just like, they've engineered in a way where, you know, with the help of, uh, can, Computer scientists plus psychologists have figured out the best way to make things addictive to the human mind, and, and you know, the dopamine levels go up, and, and to sell more ads, and yeah, it's it's a scary thing. Yeah, and it wasn't even the information or what I see that has been such a turnoff for social media, but it's just the fact that that's what the objective is. You know, it's like. I don't really care if, you know, The objective some is to sell shit to you or just something if you understand? No, the objective is it's, it's built mechanisms to manipulate my vulnerability oh. as a human. Yep. It kind of rubs off on me on the wrong way. Oh, you know 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you have, when you hire 3,000 people to then do that, it's like, hmm. Something's up. Well, they're making a lot of money. Yeah, they know that. But all of it's free. Yeah, I know. It's interesting, right? You ever, like, I, I didn't think about this really deeply, and I didn't still think about it really deeply the other day. And, and, and But for the first time I thought about it a little bit was, uh, like, who owns your data, right? Uh, because of the whole GDPR thing. Yeah, the European. Yeah, data privacy laws, where it's all about, you know, they, they make it so you own your data, right? Mm -hmm. Here in the States, it's not the case. And it makes sense that we use all these free services in exchange of like giving our data up and they can sell it. But, uh, you know, where Google obviously got themselves in real trouble with was with the whole Android operating system on phones. There's no actual consent. Like, there's no actual opt-out. It's, do you want to use the phone? Yes. Okay, like this is the operation system on that phone. Do you want to use this phone? Yes. Okay, then you can send to giving us all your data. Like that's you know I guess sparked this whole thing, and I'm I'm definitely paraphrasing and butchering this a lot, but that's okay. I'm doing it for the sake of conversation. So uh, no, but yeah, it, that, like, were, then that really started getting me thinking about 
what are the implications of these huge Well, it's companies. like you got to be 21 to drink, you got to be 18 to smoke, and you should have some level of competence to go on social media. Because the reality is no one's reading the terms and conditions and no one really understands, even if they're opting in, what they're really getting themselves into. So, you know, social media should start being looked at as something that needs to be used responsibly. Yeah. Even when social media first came out and we were all young college kids, high school kids using it, we didn't understand that it was possible to take a picture of something, an employer would see it and your ass would get fired instantly. We had to learn that through either someone informing us that or some people probably the hard way and then we'd learn from their hard way experiences. That's the way we Now it's common knowledge though, right? Well, yeah, and we all know and that's that why Snapchat exists, so that things can expire over time, right? That's why those whole, uh, what do you call it? The stories? Feed. Yeah, the stories. Yeah. Stories, right? No, it's even taking the root of these child novels, you know? It's now story. Tell a story. It's like, I ran here. I saw the sunset off of Mount Pichu. You know, it's like... No one gives a shit. It's a good sunset. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing to get all the homeless people out of here? Yeah. And unfortunately, that's not really done at the individual level. That's done at the organizational level. And that's the one reason why I still appreciate social media, because I find that social media is a very effective tool for organizations, for businesses, for movements. You were talking earlier about traditions and you know how it's important to be able to share experiences i do think social media is very good for that but i think that's just a part of it i i I think there's you know people who make use of it in that way but i unfortunately find that the predominant use of it is really still this individualistic kind of self-centered and very kind of uh oh separated experience yeah it's not like we're on the subway we're on the l train and we're all showing each other like our news feeds and laughing together about different things of instagram instead we're all hyper focused in on our own little digital eight inch screen scrolling with our thumbs i call it throttling we're just throttling and dwaddling vertically until they create a horizontal feature and maybe if we're lucky, they'll do a diagonal swipe. But <laughs> until then, we're just vertically going through this stuff. And it's like, we're not communicating anymore. We're not. And then what's even worse is we don't even know how to communicate anymore. So, like, that's where I might call bullshit on, like, I don't know. It, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe back in the 70s, like, people were all laughing and telling jokes in the subway. But I find that hard to believe, right? Like, I think that people were probably antisocial in a different way. They're probably reading a book or they're probably doing something else. But I don't think that uh, being so, like, self-promoting or, like, trying to like only show the good stuff in your life is what's, what's the word I'm thinking of here like like you're, you're so you're, you're self-promoting quite a bit and you're uh, we're doing a really bad job with our, our vocabulary tonight I feel like but uh, the whole point being that like yeah like I think that when you are constantly looking at this cool shit that other people are doing is you're like oh fuck I'm missing out on this and it kind of leads to maybe you being a little bit depressed which is not cool um that's why I stay away from it. Like I don't, I don't fuck with it too much at all. So you think it's as easy today to communicate with a stranger as it was yesterday? I have no idea. I didn't grow up in the time. I have a hard time believing that people like just well, got in the subway. What about these dating and like, apps? 
you know, people used to have to communicate directly. You have to ask a girl for a number. The girl has to give you her number. You have to speak with her. You have to understand or the girl has to understand with you, speak with you to get the number. Dude, or, I got zero virtual online game. I am much better in person. I understand. And I didn't meet, in my history of dating, I've met very few women on the internet or through an app and I have solely had to rely on my uh, goofiness and my charm or, you know, the, the sliver of charm that I have to get that. Uh, so like, People say stuff like that, and I just like I wonder if they would have, and like you know you've been with your girlfriend for a very very long time, right? Like you haven't had to operate on these dating apps, right? No, I didn't. Yeah, I actually was. Yeah, I, so I'm not I'm not part of it, but I've seen my friends. You see your friends? They're though. on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on multiple. They're not even on one. Oh, of course, of course, of course. I mean, why limit your your odds? You're like, and don't get me wrong, I've done it, but I've just been much more successful with talking to people in real life. Uh, and what that leads me to believe is like that actually if the you know who knows but i think that the twist on it could be that those apps are probably getting some people laid that otherwise wouldn't have gotten laid if they're only relying on those things so give the uh founders so a nobel peace prize so no 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 no, no. so it's like they're, they're not that bad those those apps well, no, I didn't say they were bad. Mm -hmm. I'm just using it as an example as the way we communicate as humans yeah. is yeah, 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 is changing. True. Yeah. Because you were saying that, you know, most likely we've kind of always been in this more, you know, private and personal livelihood. But I have a feeling that the way we're communicating, like you spend, you'll, you'll like, you know, instead of having to go outside to the library and like, you know, meet someone, you can just sit at home and, you know, install five different apps and meet you know, a whole bunch of different people through there. That's totally fair. I guess my point was that I've never met a girl in real life who said, hey, you know what, can you just find me on Tinder and match with me and then we'll talk, right? <laughs> so like, I, I, I guess that like that's my proof point, if you will, like that, yeah, I think that if something like they might enable people to, to communicate or connect a little bit easier, I don't think to preventing real world interactions though, if that makes any sense. I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. So like it's, but it's an easy way to demonize them. But and, and don't get me wrong, well, I no am, one's no one's demonizing. And not yet. Not so let's give you another example. We can talk. You know, we'll go. And back I'm to, not an advocate for tech or apps because yeah, I, well, I don't like Let's go back like to politics. Hillary Clinton. It's November of 2016. Mm -hmm. She's like ready to win the election. Yeah. The Trump tapes came out with Billy Bush. Trump talking about how he can slap any ass. You know, Democrats oh, social media politics confident. is really tough. And but they they had these data analytics of like, oh, we're gonna win, like we're good, we we got this, and Trump wins. And you know, I just wonder if like more of Hillary's team went out to the these places in Ohio and you know, yeah, they were, North Carolina, they and met for, with the people and understood that. People weren't just all excited about Hillary winning, but instead, you know, there were some real issues that needed to be addressed. Yeah. But, you know, they relied more on these analytics and these polls yeah. rather than, you know, this guy, Michael Moore, he came out with, you know, his doc. I haven't even seen it yet, but he came out with the documentary, Why Trump's Gonna Win. 
before the election even was over. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. And essentially, he was just going around all these Trump rallies understanding it. I did go to his, uh, his like, launch, like, for this one film that he did in Philly, actually, a while ago with one friend, where he talked about, like, 10 reasons why, I'm totally going to butcher this, but it was about why, like, all these countries are better than America. And then he took, like, one reason from all these different countries, like their healthcare policy, or their vacation policy, or uh, like some other kind of like social thing they did. Um, it was a really interesting film, but some dude like shouted him down at the end of the movie. Uh, like Michael Moore was there in person and took questions, and this guy like stood up and just like ripped into him, and it was really like a funny experience to be a part of it. Uh, but no, I haven't. I, I I've heard that, but I haven't seen that film. So I'm yeah, I'd be interested to see that too. And with the whole like with that. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a danger. Um, and, it, and it goes that saying, and there's so many articles and, and, and you know, a lot of stuff that's written about the dangers of uh, social media and politics because people are so easily persuaded and they're so easily manipulated, right? And I think that as, you know, we're, if we're going to get back into politics again, I'll talk about like my experience in. Uh, the last election before I left San Francisco where I voted on propositions for the first time, I, in the last election in general, I decided I was like, I'm actually gonna be a responsible citizen. I'm gonna make a spreadsheet. I'm gonna list all the issues and the candidates for this election. I am going to like Dude, I'm compile. Tired. Just what you're doing, I'm man. compiling. I'm sweating. Info. There was actually a really really cool website called Ballot.fyi. It's available in California. We don't endorse them, but uh, we'll let that go. <laughs> but it's really cool because what they do is they put uh, for all of the issues during election season, they'll put together the opinions and, and articles of people from both sides. And then, like, they'll label it. Hey, this is one side's view. This is the other side's view. And then this is like the conservative or the uh, neutral view, like just the facts. And then I use that, and I use a couple other resources to like build this spreadsheet of all of the different issues and the different uh, people that were involved in the different races, uh, people who were running rather, and um, spent hours going through this and like really critically thinking about like what are my core principles and beliefs. And then from there, working through based on that and then like jostling with some issues or like really, really like, uh, there were some times where there were some things I was like, wow, this is actually really difficult. Like I'm kind of changing my mind on this core fundamental thing. Um, but going through that exercise was so helpful and it was so eye opening. And it's funny how in society, especially with politics, we don't like let people change their mind. We don't let people change I mean, their position. I mean, you got Howard Schultz former CEO, I don't know if he's CEO anymore, of uh, Starbucks, saying he's gonna run for president as an independent. I see more Democrats talking shit on the guy than I see Republicans. I see more Democrats saying, oh, you're a plague to you know democracy. You're gonna make Trump win again. You, why are you doing this? You're you know messing up the election, which scares me because if you can't even have someone who if you can't even have a third party representative crazy. go without people jumping on them instantly it's crazy the next day something's broken something's broken so so what I was gonna to finish that out real quickly it's uh, you know if Howard Schultz runs on the platform of like free pumpkin spice lattes I think 
he could pull in a real there's a lot, there's a lot of votes he could pull in there of some folks and then he can you know critically uh, talk about other issues but uh, all jokes aside what I was trying to get at earlier with that whole spreadsheet thing is like it took me hours and hours of time and effort to go through this whole process and then at the end of it I went in and I voted but uh, it made me realize that nobody does that like I like nobody does that uh, because I, I saw how hard it is I was like wow that was really hard really challenging I like really thought critically about all these things and like went through these processes and it's just it's a lot and I'm happy I did it but uh, you know you kind of at the same time it's like fun and exciting and you feel empowered as an informed citizen who's going there to place the vote that you think is the right thing but at the same time it's kind of discouraging in a weird way because you then feel like you start to realize that not many people are doing this if it was that hard especially as you have conversations with people and maybe it's I don't have enough data to really say that it's it's, uh, very it's true when you have conversations with people they have one way of thinking and if you like you know obstruct their way of thinking it starts getting really personal and Mm. you know you start losing friends and family over it which isn't fair because there should be room for an objective conversation that simply means both sides can share their points yeah. without coming off as disrespectful. Yeah. And that's one of the other things that I've learned speaking to a lot of older people who tend to be more Republican, mind you, is that, you know, they're a little more blunt with some of these issues. Uh, and I don't know why that is, but what I mean to say is that people have their mindsets and their way of thinking. And I think we somehow need to get to that and kind of go past kind of the corporate information that's being pushed on us. You know, I I think when you look at media, it's consolidated amongst a number of media platforms. When you look at television, it's consolidated amongst a number of television networks. And this has happened over the past, you know, 50 years of these mergers and acquisitions. It's still happening. It just happened with Disney and Fox and, you know, Sky Tower, whatever, uh, the Rupert Murdoch uh, companies, etc. Uh, you know, they're all being bought and consolidated. Um, even Facebook and uh, Twitter. Yeah. They're, uh, they have campaigns going on to acquire local news media sources and put together platforms to take over local media. No, no way. No, 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 no. Uh, so, you know, it's just it's it's just very difficult to. Uh, and then, you know, even if you do get someone saying something, you know, some viewpoint to kind of provide, you know, non-corporate uh, viewpoints, you don't know if it's a Russian bot, you know, now or some type of you know, fake you know endorser that's been paid to just spew something. And outside of politics, you saw that happen with the fire festival, right? You had all these different, you know, influencers on social media saying, you know, this is going to be the greatest music festival. And you do a deal with Ja Rule. It's like, yeah, it's going to be a great festival. Then you get there and you're like, where's my chicken waffle sandwich? You're like, I need to eat something because I'm so hungry after the flight. And then you're looking to party and there's nothing there. So this, this world of disinformation or this noisy information, it's 
very interesting to understand how you know how one can filter it all and I think the only way to do it is the hard way and that's to do it consciously you know do it with what was that big thing that they don't talk about anymore mindfulness right remember it's like be mindful like when you're eating your like chicken be mindful of you know that chicken and how it grew from an egg and you know how its head got chopped off eventually like be mindful and so you know I think to some degree that is an important element that's missing Mm -hmm. it's we're so quick to believe something that we already believe confirmation bias whatever but you know the, the smartest of us are ones who may be a little more skeptical to believe something. And when you hear something, maybe it's worth it to say, well, where's this evidence coming from? And, you know, what's the counter evidence? And why is that counter evidence, you know, existing? And then from both sides, make more of a robust interpretation and belief. And even if you believe one way or the other, at least you have a rounded understanding. Yeah, it's just like, you know, very rarely in uh, people who are, uh, you know, maybe these big, uh, well, very rarely in political conversations do you hear people just be like, you know what, that's a really good point. I never thought about that. And they change their mind. Um, because, like, it's almost like a team sport. Like, you, you have your team and you dig in and you root for them. And, like, yeah, it, it's become a weird thing. Anyway. But I mean, not even, too much even, about that, but even with the government shutdown, you know, I'm talking to someone. They're like, "And Trump shut down the government. Like, th- this is horrible. Like, so many people not getting paid." And I'm like, "The government was shut down when Bill Clinton was president. Like, you know, like it's happened. Democrats, it's happened. Republicans." And then they were like, "Yeah, but Trump shutdown was longer." It's like, I technically, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I can't beat you there, but. You know, in my eyes, still, shutdown's a shutdown. You know what I'm saying? To even initiate a shutdown, there's some, you know... Yeah. It's, you know, there, it's it's more important to understand why shutdowns happen, what happens during a shutdown, mm-hmm. and what it affects versus, you know, all of the conversation around the shutdown is just trying to point a finger at someone to, you know, blame or to create the cause. So it's kind of like the talking points on issues get shifted to very kind of narrow yeah. narrow viewpoints. Um, speaking of the uh, fire, what's it, the fire festival, have you seen the documentaries? No, I haven't seen it. I need to watch it. Yeah, so do I do. People are talking about how, fucking, how good they are. Uh, I still actually have no idea what happened with that whole thing. And well, that's, that's why I tried to, like, so I, I did read on it a little bit and apparently it was these influencers who pumped the event up and because these influencers on social media are people, they're real people. Yeah. And they're building real connections with people. And people are thinking that those influencers are saying and doing things based on how they feel as people or how the influencers feel as, you know, themselves. But what's really happening is these companies are paying the influencers and then the influencers are talking about these things, which means these influencers technically advertise it. There's laws that are you know, regulated by the FCC that you have to disclose certain types of advertisements. Uh, shit, yeah. But these influencers, because the law hasn't caught up to this new way of communication, yep. have undercut these FCC laws. And so you can imagine over the next few years, the FCC is gonna start cracking down 
on these things. And it started happening with a lot of the cryptocurrency because you had these high influencers in technology or you know even like music and sports. I can't remember, uh, there was some case, I can't remember specifically, but some large influencers like, yeah, and do this ICO, like it's gonna be huge, like we got this new coin, it's gonna be amazing. Everyone starts investing in it, and then like, you know, whether it's successful or not successful, that influencer is probably has an equity stake in that ICO, but they didn't disclose it. Now the SEC comes, starts cracking down on yeah, yeah. So You know what's really interesting to think about? It's like social media has not been around for long at all, and it's so new to society, and I don't know if there's been, a, and this is like a fucked up weird thing to think about, but I don't know if there's been any influencers that have died yet. And like, just thinking about like, life of an influencer, right? like they produce all this content over time. I really just wonder what happens when they stop generating content, right? They stop posting pictures, they stop doing things. People eventually, they don't fall, crop up in their feed anymore, they just get forgotten. Like I really, it's gonna be interesting to see as time goes on when unfortunately folks pass away, uh, what's gonna happen. And in Facebook and, and all these, you know, Instagram specifically will probably have some interesting statistics around uh, what happens after an influencer dies and like what, how, how much longer their well, profile's active for if it gets reinvigorated by somebody posting a yeah. Well the thing might be, it's before they even die, it's what happens when an influencer gets really big. I'm sure they have to, you know, once they start raking in mad dough, it's not a person anymore. They probably create some type of Brand, business entity. Yeah. They probably do an LLC just to start. And then, you know, at some point if it gets too big, then they start, you know, creating more of a corporate, you know, legal status uh, for, you know, whether it be an S corp or whatever. They get, you know, they can start getting investments into their company to then build their brand even larger. Yeah. Uh, but with that said, look at Kate Spade, right? She made these products. She originally designed them. Yeah. But eventually, she was bought out of it. Yeah. Most of us probably didn't know that though. Most of us assume Kate Spade's just in her basement making handbags. Maybe she was, I don't, I don't know the full story, but once she passed away, I don't think anything happened to Kate Spade as a company, right? It still existed. It still had its employees. It still no, had they, its did, they did post some things about uh, like, on the homepage of the website, I think that day they had some stuff around like, uh, paying tribute. Uh, well, yeah, no, well, yeah, no, but I'm saying in terms of the company and its existence, oh, no, and no, its yeah, revenue generation, and its selling, and its marketing mechanisms, those were still in place. The, essentially, the brand and the company became much huger than the individual herself. Yeah. And I don't know what effects that might have had on the founder, of you know, but you know, the the whole point is these influencers. They're influencers, but are they really a person? It says it's a person, but is it? Maybe, you know, the Kardashian brand, it's it's a person, right? But they probably have 30 hairstylists, 30 makeup artists, 30 writers, 20 partnerships with major media brands to really promote everything. Yeah, It's not so just weird. like, you know, someone just tweeting around and it's like, oh, okay. It's a new media, man. It's a weird new world. Uh... Yeah, the whole media game is changing. It's very, very interesting. It's really interesting, too, to think about, like, 
people are just so not used to uh, paying for journalism. Um, and you see a lot of these publications now putting up paywalls at a much earlier stage. Yeah, just open up your uh, in-private browsing, put the same URL in there, and you should bypass that Ooh. easily. There we That's go. That's a trick. That's a nice trick. Shh, shh, shh. Only for the listeners. Only for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, we definitely need to get, like, before we do this again. For sure. For sure. Just... But I think we did a pretty good job, man. <laughs> Catch you guys on the flip side.